turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Let me get my timer started. Ephesians chapter 5, 19 to 21. The portrait of a spirit-filled Christian. The portrait of a spirit-filled Christian. Do you have a phrase that when you hear it, it just gets under your skin? I One is, that guy is so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good. And I get get what they're saying to a point, but thinking about it biblically, if we were to say someone was so biblically-minded, so biblically and theologically-minded that they are of no earthly good, and they're of no good to their neighbors or their friends or their family, I would say that's hogwash. Absolute hogwash. The vertical relationship that every Christian has with the Lord directly affects the horizontal relationship that he or she has with his fellow man. And a man or a woman who knows God, who walks well with God, and who obeys His Son, and who is filled with His most Holy Spirit, is a man or a woman who is a true, heartfelt blessing to his or her fellows. Especially, critically, within the household of faith. A man who loves God will subsequently love those whom God loves. Being spirit-filled will make you the kind of person that you would want to surround you in your life. Being heavenly-minded, being spirit-filled, most definitely makes a person earthly good. And to demonstrate this, Paul gives us four outflowings, four consequences of being spirit-filled. Being spirit-filled will result in spirit-filled speaking. It will also produce spirit-filled singing and spirit-filled saying and then spirit-filled submission. Let's read our text today. Let me start at the end of verse 18 just to set All of this is flowing out of the last phrase of 18. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like, Paul? Here's what it looks like. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of God of Christ. First, we'll see that being spirit-filled leads to spirit-filled speaking in the first half of verse 19. Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This means that being spirit-filled 
means that what comes out of your mouth is going to have a substantial impact and influence. Not only what comes out of your mouth, but really the thoughts and intentions of the heart in multiple places, such as Luke 6.45, Jesus tells us that what comes out of the mouth is really what is an abundance in the heart. The, 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 the mouth is just the speaking piece for the heart. The heart is the wellspring for the mouth. Maybe you've heard someone say something mean or crude or insensitive just to kind of follow up with, you know, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean that. Well, yes, they did. Because if they didn't mean it, they wouldn't have said it. What's in the heart comes out of the mouth. And having the Spirit affect you and direct you and influence you and change you, which is all the, the means of being Spirit-filled, means that the things you say as well as the thoughts and intentions and the feelings that are going on and operating in the heart that re- that result in the mouth speaking are going to change. And here Paul says it will change towards speaking positively and constructively towards those, especially what's well, speaking Uh, uh, constructively towards others, but especially, particularly, crucially towards those within the faith. Primary change that a spirit-filled person has compared to their old life where they weren't spirit-filled because they couldn't have the spirit And compared perhaps to the Christian who is young or immature or even stubborn in their sanctification, we have those. Compared to to those, the primary change now is that instead of seeking what self can get, which I I know this is going to blow your minds, that's not a uh, that is a a natural phenomena in people. You don't have to train a child how to be. Selfish. You don't have to train one child to take their th- take things from their siblings. That's something they just naturally do. Instead of seeking what self can get, the spirit-filled person, by the spirit's guiding, by the spirit's molding, and spirit's changing, now seeks what he can contribute to others. Paul's already talked about this back in 428 where the one who customarily stole from others, he must no longer steal, but rather he must work earnestly and sincerely, not only so that he can provide for himself with integrity, but so that he can have something to share with those who do not have. The fundamental shift in the spirit-filled person's interests and concerns, self-interests, are replaced with otherly interests. And in 428, the context is uh, of how that primarily plays out is seen in what a person does with their hands. Stealing is replaced with giving. Here in 529, self-serving speech, self-elevating speech is replaced with edifying speech that serves and elevates and advances not self, but others. 
Some people may even bring this bring this old phenomena into the church and they may come to church with selfish, selfish expectations. They may want to be entertained. They may want to be amused or served. They may want the sermon to be a certain length. And some of these expectations, to be sure, can have a nugget of nobility to them. A, nobi- a nugget of nobility and righteousness, like I want to be challenged, which is good. I want to be t- taught, which is good. I want to grow. These are all good. However, where is the focus primarily? I, I, I. The focus is nonetheless primarily on self. What is, what is this service doing for me? What is the music that Daniel chooses? What is it doing for me? What is the sermon doing for me? What our priority should also be in, in addition to what has been said to me and what has been done for me, our priority should also be what have I said to others? What have I done for others? What impact have I had on someone else today through the things that I have said to them? What questions have I asked them? What concern have I showed for them? What provisions have I offered to make for them? What joy have I shared with them? How how have I stimulated them in their walk? How have I advanced or enabled them towards holiness, love, and good deeds? Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. And I just throw in holiness because that's not bad to do. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Even in the first century, it was a struggle for some to, to come to church and to participate and to do these one another's. Now I want you to notice the kind of speech that Paul is employing in verse 19. He uses psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And at face value, this, this may seem like Paul is instructing us uh, uh, in, our, in our fellowship, in our times of assembling together, that our church service is supposed to be like a musical where every single thing, every single uh, uh, question or, or statement that we make to one another is supposed to be conducted in rhyme and rhythm that would be silly and chaotic i don't i i god is not or paul for that matter is not expecting me to come in and turn to someone and say brother perry are you mary and where's where's your wife and how's her life and there's steve co oh no brother mount it's time to account I mean, it, it, it would be silly if every single time we open our mouth, it, it is only in rhythm and rhyme. No, that's not what Paul is talking about here. And I understand some of you are going to need a little bit of time to recover from that. He tells us to speak to one another 
and, and I have uh, uh, a reason that I'll bring up a little later to tell us that right here, Paul is not primarily talking about singing and music. He's still talking about speech. But he uses psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and a lot of ink has been spilt trying to get uh, into uh, what's the difference be- between these words. And, and uh, I'll say something I don't typically say as an exegete. I don't care. But what I do care, primarily for the sake of time, what I do care about is getting into what the idea is behind the grouping of these words. Namely, it's this, that Paul is concerned here in this verse that we speak to each other in a way that advances and builds and affirms one another in the faith. That's what Paul wants, and Paul wants that because that's what God wants. We are to speak to one another in a way that builds and advances and affirms each one another in the faith. We're not to be consumed with idle chit-chat, idle words. We don't just chew the fat, we speak of spiritual things. We speak of doctrine. We speak of the history of God's works, both in Scripture and in our own lives. We speak of Scripture and how God's provision has impacted our life. Some of you do that. I try to do that. We speak to one another about how God's truth and commands may be applied in our lives. So that we can, as, as the writer to Hebrews says, stimulate one another. We talk about how we need grace and mercy and how they are abundantly provided and found in Christ Jesus. We speak of the glory and the beauty and the power and the wisdom and the greatness of our Lord and what it all means for us. They're not just some static terms on the PowerPoint from time to time. They mean things to us. They impact us. We speak of what it means to be saved, what it means to belong to the Lord, and what, what it means to have the joy and the relief of a cleansed conscience. To have one's debt wiped clean. Before a Lord, before a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. We speak of the future hope we have of being raised up to a new body long after this one has grown old and withered and faded away. We speak of heaven and how we wonder with great anticipation how great and glorious and good it will be to be finally taken home after trudging through this earthen hovel. For however many years the Lord grants to us. We speak of spiritual truths and realities that build and affirm and advance our faith. And here's that reason. I know that, that he's, Paul's primarily concerned with speech and not music yet. Because in the parallel passage in Colossians 3.16, he doesn't mention 
singing yet. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Teaching and admonishing requires two-way speech. Spirit-filled speaking, faith-building, faith-affirming, faith-advancing communication is a definitive mark of a spirit-filled Christian. What else is a mark of a spirit-filled Christian is spirit-filled singing. So now we get to music. He says, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Someone once said that the Christian religion is a teaching religion, and that's true. The Christian religion is also a singing religion. It is a singing faith. It is a musical faith, a melodious faith. And the musically talented, the music lovers among us should appreciate it, appreciate this. And those who are disinclined to use their voice to make melody and harmony alongside others, and I know there are those of you out there, we are a Baptistish church and a Baptist denomination. I know there are some out there who refuse to move a muscle and don't open their mouths because it feels awkward. It's not just the musically competent and the musically confident who make music, it's everybody. It's everybody. And the spirit-filled Christian most certainly engages in making a musical contribution to the Lord. And notice that there is a, a shift primarily between the, the horizontal aspect of, of speaking to one another in verse 19 to here it being a primarily vertical relationship. I just want you to see how, how closely tied the vertical and the horizontal is. Under the influence of the Spirit of God, the people of God, both privately, perhaps in your shower or in the car or on a walk somewhere or in, the, or in a boat in the middle of a lake, privately as well as corporately, the people of God make music. They are music makers. They are melody makers. Paul tells us right here where it's to be directed. We don't sing for one another. We don't sing to one another. We sing to the Lord. It's right there. We worship in song, in melody, in harmony, or at least we try to. But you know what? Honestly, God doesn't care. God, God, God doesn't care how good you sound. Your neighbor might. The person behind you might. Or in front of you might. God doesn't care. He's just delighted that you sing. Praying to God, speaking to the Lord with words and petitions and praises isn't enough. We must also make music to Him. We must make music. Why? It's, it's because, and, and here's, here's a, a, a rarity. I'm quoting a Psychology Today article, positively. Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll cite the title. 
Courtney S. Warren for Psychology Today writes, uh, titles her article, Music is What Feelings Sound Like. Music is What Feelings Sound Like. And I'm not, I'm not a music major. I was in band for two years uh, and choir for one. But I, I know that music sheets have all, the, all these little bits of info on them that tell the, the singer or the artist how it's to be played. With play with feeling. With, uh, play excitedly. I, I guess they're all in adjectives. Play mournfully. Play slowly. Retardando. Crescendo. With passion. With conviction. These, these are tools that the music writer put in so that the, so that the artist, so that the singer, can convey feeling. An emotion. You sing with your heart in it, and these tools are telling you how. They're helping you to do so. Music is what feelings sound like, and I like that. And I would say that is, that is a vital thing for our communion with the Lord as we come together in worship. You know, one of the most stinging criticisms that the prophet Isaiah, as well as Jesus when he cited Isaiah, had for the people of Israel was that though they worship with their lips, what was, where, how far, what, what was going on in their heart? Their heart was far from him. And if we have come here and your heart is indeed near the Lord, that closeness, that close proximity, that warm affection and love and reverence that you have for your God must manifest itself in emotional expression in music and song. Now, as, as with all the verbs in our text today, I'm, I'm really only singling it out here, all the verbs are in the present tense, which tells us these are to be ongoing things, not just on Sunday morning. Certainly not just once on a Sunday morning. They're to be ongoing actions in our lives. They're to qualify us. They're to mark us. We sing and we make melody when it's convenient and when we feel like it. We also sing and make melody when we don't. And even Christians can sometimes feel like not singing or making melody. That doesn't abrogate our prerogative to do so. We sing and make melody when we receive good news and have cause to rejoice. We sing and we make melody when our hearts are devastated with loss and tragedy. And if you, you could just simply go through the Psalms and you can find some Psalms that were written on very, very good days. You can find some Psalms that were written in the pit of despair. I wonder if, if David wrote Psalm 23 while he was in one of those uh, valleys of the shadow of death. Read Psalm 88. And if, if you were never told that sometimes God, God leads his people and perseveres his people through dark days, if you have never heard that, 
I don't know if you would know what to do with Psalm 88. Exodus 15, Moses and the, song, and the sons of Israel, almost said songs of Israel, sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. That was a good day. Second Samuel 5, David has brought the ark back from the Philistines. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And in verse 15, they add their voices as well as trumpets. That was a good day. Twice in Revelation, those who see the unfiltered, unmitigated, unrestrained glory of the Lord which I would say definitely makes a good day, are brought to song. Revelation 5.9 They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Revelation 14.3 And they sang a new song before the throne. James 5.13 even explicitly tells us, Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. It's a good day. Tell the Lord about it. Tell others about the goodness, about the good day that God has given you. The people of God sing to God in good times and because of good news, and they also sing in bad times and because of affliction. Acts 16.25, after being unjustly arrested and beaten, Paul and Barnabas Luke writes, sung a hymn while in prison, while shivering, while probably bleeding from contusions and lacerations, maybe having a broken bone or two. Acts 16.25, a mere hour or two perhaps before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, we, we, know, in a, we know shortly he will be stressed to the limitations of his capillaries because they're going to burst and he's going to sweat blood. This is shortly before that, so no, no doubt the, 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 the stress is already building up. Jesus, Mark fourteen twenty six, he leads the disciples in a hymn. I wonder with, with all the curiosity that my heart could, could produce what did the voice of the Lord Jesus sound like as he worshipped the Father ultimately right now it's not important for us to know but Jesus sung a hymn on the darkest, at the beginning of the darkest day of his life the people of God sing to God in good times and bad in the day of blessing as well as the day of adversity. An anonymous writer composed this. My life flows on an, en on an endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the real though far off hymn that hails a new creation. 
No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? The Christian faith is a singing faith. The Lord's people are a singing people. This is one of the things the Spirit produces in us. What he also produces is spirit-filled saying, particularly saying of thanks. Saying of thanks. The spirit-filled Christian has a regular pattern, as with all of these, contributes with his speech, he worships with music, and he expresses gratitude. Christians ought to be known for their gratitude. The Spirit-filled Christian is a walking, thanking machine. He is grateful for what he has. He's grateful for what he's been given. He's grateful for everything that's been done for him. And he's grateful, certainly in our case, he's grateful for what he's been spared. Paul says, always giving thanks. And I I think think he's anticipating that among all, all of these things he's instructing us today, perhaps giving thanks is the hardest to do on a, on a not-so-good day. And while all of these are in the present tense, meaning that they're always to be done, Paul has to, feels like he has to specifically put out right there in front of us, always, just in case this is one of those days you're feeling like not doing so, always giving thanks for all things, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Genuine gratitude. Sincere thanksgiving. These things mark a Christian. Especially when they're given in circumstances where a worldly person would not, could not feel grateful or give thanks. We thank God for being gracious to us and for not giving us as sinners what we deserve and for giving us as sinners what we don't deserve. We have been given Jesus, the eternal Son of the Most High God. We have been given the most wonderful person to ever walk this earth. We've been given Him as a Savior. We have been given Him as a Lord who is benevolent. Many lords throughout history, and perhaps in some degrees they're revealing themselves today, many lords have demonstrated they are not not benevolent to their people. That's a reality Jesus even drew upon when He said, "You, You know how the Gentiles are. They lord themselves. Their rulers lord themselves over others, over those placed under them. How unlike Jesus. We have been given a Lord who loves us, who is benevolent towards us. We have been given friendship. We have been granted friendship to the grandest of kings and the loftiest of lords. We get him as our deliverer. You get him as your advocate. There's no better advocate to have. 
There's no one better to have your back. There's no one better to speak on your behalf. We've been given a seat at his table when we deserved to be at his execution block. We of all people who have been spared and showed mercy and yet continue to wake up every day breathing the king's air, we have, of all people have most reason to be thankful. So just as we worship God in the day of blessing as well as the day of adversity, so too do we give thanks in both kinds of days, in both manner of days. We thank God in evil days, not necessarily for evil days. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think we are to thank God for evil that befalls us. And I'm not convinced that we're supposed to thank God for things such as an illness or a car accident or a natural disaster or the loss of a loved one. I'm not convinced we're to thank God that evil is being called good and good is being called evil. And that, uh, and that the things that Scripture calls abominations are being advocated for and championed and celebrated. We don't praise God for evil and the things he calls abomination. But here's how we can give thanks. Here's how we can praise God in the midst of very evil days. We can and we should praise God for being God in the midst of these evil days. And for being able and willing and inclined to bring good out of evil. Two, two texts that tell us that this is something he does. Genesis fifty twenty. You remember Joseph's brothers. They were envious. They were jealous. They hated their brother. They, they, they had every intention to kill him. And then by God's providence, they sold him into slavery. At the, ver- uh, at the end of Genesis, when, they are, when, when um, Jacob has passed away and they, they think, oh, Joseph's going to have his comeuppance on us now. We're going to get what we deserve. Joseph says this, highlighting man's responsibility as well as God's sovereignty. Genesis fifty twenty. you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. In the midst of a day of adversity and a day of affliction, you can thank God that though men and the world are afflicting you with evil intentionally, God is allowing it and purposing it for some good down the road. You may not see that, but you can still give thanks to God for that. Romans 8, 28 God works all things, not just the good things, not just the fluffy things, not just the pleasant things. He works all things together for, to good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. We can thank God for assuring us that a day is approaching when all sin will be fully dealt with. And the people of God won't have to endure sin and temptation and affliction any longer. We don't know when that day is, but we know it's coming. And it's closer today than it was yesterday. We can be thankful 
that a day is coming when sin and death will be defeated and put away, never to raise their vicious heads again. We can be thankful to God that that righteousness and justice will in that day reign forever and everything will be unimaginably good and glorious. You can thank God for these things, and you should. You can thank God that He has a sovereign plan that can't be thwarted. You can thank God that Christ is coming back for His own. You can thank God that no matter how evil the days become, Christ will never be usurped from His throne, and that you have a seat at His table, and you will forever be a friend, an accepted and well-received and beloved friend of the King. Friend, you can thank God today, even though the day is evil. And as the days get more evil, eviler, darker, as the days get darker, you can always give thanks. You can thank God that in a million, billion, trillion, gazillion years from now, whatever afflictions and trials you have suffered in this life, if you even bother to recall them, because I am sure and confident that the glory that we're going to experience, the joy we're going to experience is going to be so great and unending, I don't know why we would want to look back and remember our own afflictions. But if you do, they're going to seem so trivial. They're going to seem so trivial. Can you remember the things that just devastated you as a kid? Go into the Kmart. And the G.I. Joe that you wanted, the Snake Eyes, or the General Duke, they didn't have it. Oh, it was horrible. You go to Baskin-Robbins on the ride home, the ice cream scoop falls into your lap. Oh, that was horrible. The things that devastated you as a kid, now that you're older, it doesn't really seem like it's that big of a deal, does it? Maybe some of you still cry a little when your ice cream scoop falls into your lap, but... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4:17 that our current afflictions are both momentary and light. And sure they don't seem momentary, they don't seem light in the midst of it, but they do when it's compared when they are compared with what's to come, which Paul says is glorious and then also isn't worthy to be compared to our afflictions because it was so much greater. They they don't even compare. Isn't that something to be thankful for? Yes, it is. And until that time, you have ample reason to thank God for being who He is and for doing everything He's done for you in His Son, Jesus. And just to tie in points two and three together, here's, here, here are two psalms that, that, that bind together singing with thanksgiving. Psalm 69:30, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 28:7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore my heart exults and with my song I shall thank him. Spirit-filled speaking, spirit-filled singing, Spirit-filled saying of thanks. And last on our list, but certainly not least. Don't, don't think just because it's the, li- it's the last one and it uses fewer words. Don't think it's any less important. Here we have spirit-filled 
submission. Spirit-filled submission. An attitude of sincere and humble submission towards the needs of, of others is not some tertiary quality of the Christian walk. It is a central, central quality, central prerogative, central feature of the Christian life. And it most certainly manifests in the spirit-filled man or woman. When Jesus set aside his regality, he set aside the glories of heaven, and he humbled himself in coming down to our level and becoming one of us, wrapping himself in, in, a, in a garb of human flesh, so that he might become our representative. And so that he might go to the cross and bear our sins. And atone for them and put them away so that they could never be held against us. In addition to that, he was doing something else. He was setting an example for us to follow. And this wasn't some like afterthought. This was intentional. He was demonstrating how a spirit-filled person looks at himself. He was demonstrating how a spirit-filled person prioritizes himself. And it turns out the spirit-filled person doesn't prioritize himself. Big surprise. The spirit-filled person doesn't prioritize himself or herself. He doesn't put himself, his wants, his needs His ego, first and before others. He doesn't assert his will. He doesn't do what he wants or goes where he wants, irrespective of the concerns of others. The spirit-filled person doesn't do that because the spirit-filled person looks in the mirror. And he doesn't see himself as being that important. He's too humble for that. In the words of Matthew 5.3, he's too poor in spirit for that. Instead, he rather looks upon others and he sees their needs as being more pressing, more urgent, more worthy of being recognized and addressed than, than his own. And then because of that, because of that recognition, that assessment... He then raises to the occasion to do something about that. This is what Jesus did. This was his attitude. This was the impulse that moved him from heaven to earth, from from the throne to the ranks of men. And among the ranks of men, this is what propelled him to the lowest rank of men where he was despised and hated and rejected. And from there to the agonies of the cross and the taste of death. The one who deserved to be served came not to be served, but rather to himself serve others. And he says so in Mark 10.45. I think perhaps the most clear Discussion on this is found in Philippians 2, where Paul writes, verse 3, 
with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says this in, for, in verse 5. This attitude that I am, I am compelling you to adopt, this attitude that I, I, I wish you would have and I'm instructing you to have, it was the same attitude that Jesus Christ had in, in himself. This was the attitude Jesus had. Here Paul says, be subject to one another. Be subject to one another. Subject, or to be subjected, means to be arranged or positioned under someone else in rank. And it's commonly used in military. It was used in military terms in Jesus' day. It still is. It's also appropriate in marriage and employment which we'll see in the upcoming texts. I think all the way through 6-9 is just an extrapolation of what submission is supposed to look like in the people of God within specific roles. But subjection is where one person is placed or arranged under. Under is the key word. One person is placed or positioned under another, another person. One person is placed in leadership. The other is placed in a subordinate role. One leads, one follows. One bears a measure of responsibility that the other does not. And with these words, Paul is repeating what the Lord often, often, painstakingly taught his disciples. Namely, that, his, that the Lord's people are not to be quarreling, arguing, competing, and trying to best and one-up one another. Rather, the Lord's people should have a, a, such a low regard for their individual selves such that they have a ready deference. They have a ready deference to others in the assembly. Is that you? Is that me? Christians ought not be a bunch of independent, strong-willed people who are ready to die on every hill, every little hill, for their own ideas, egos, feelings, agendas, wants, and needs. The arrogant man or woman is not a spirit-filled person. The contentious person is not a spirit-filled person. Nor is the pugnacious, self-asserting, opinionated, temperamental, unforbearing, impatient person either. These are completely contrary to being spirit-filled. And this call to be otherly oriented this call to have a concern for one another has been Paul's marching beat and passionate plea ever since chapter 4, verse 1, where he's been calling for unity. That is, the, that is the cry of his apostolic heart. Let there be unity among the people of God. And there is no greater and more effective adhesive for unity 
than for everybody involved to have the Christ-like attitude of selfless humility which manifests itself in a low regard for the individual and a higher regard for one another. That is the best, most effective adhesive for unity. But Aaron, sometimes that is so beneath me. I mean, look look at what God has given me. Look at how God has made me. Look at the opportunities I have. Was it beneath Christ to become a man and serve men and to die for men on a Roman cross? You betcha. Was it beneath Christ to stoop as low as he did? Yes. And that's our model. That's our pattern. He's our pattern. We are to stoop low with the apron of a slave on, with a servant servant's garb, as it were, like he did. But Aaron, you, you should see some of these people. You should see so-and-so. So-and-so doesn't deserve it. I don't care. And we don't, we don't submit to one another because anybody deserves it. Did everyone get that? Our responsibility to stoop low, as it were, and to look lowly at ourselves and highly at other people at one another within the assembly, is not built upon or precipiced upon the inherent goodness or deservability of the individual. We stoop low. We bow low. We give. We serve. We highly regard others because Christ is telling us to do so. We submit to one another, not because anybody deserves it, but because the king says to do it. We do it for him. That's how Paul concludes his sentence. We do so in the fear of Christ. We stoop low. We submit ourselves in attitude and spirit before others because of a reverence out of a reverence, out of a respect, a deep, heartfelt, sobering respect for the King who bids us to do so. Not because we feel like it, not because of the other, not because of any recognition of someone else's rank or position or title or because of their reputation. We do so because the King bids us to. Christ speaks. We obey. Being spirit-filled results in spirit-filled speaking, spirit-filled singing, spirit-filled saying of thanks, and spirit-filled submission. All, all marks, all outpourings of the spirit-filled life. Let's pray. Lord, I... First of all, before anyone else has a chance to say anything, I, I confess that I, I am not these things. I fail in these things. I fail to bear the Spirit's fruit in these regards. 
And if anyone else here is standing with me in that conviction and confession, help us to repent. Help us to be filled with the Spirit. Help us to submit ourselves to His Word which He inspired. Help us to submit ourselves to His prompting and His teaching and His leading and His guiding and His molding as He changes us through our exposure to the Word. Help us to where we have not done so in the past to deny ourselves. May we repent of sin and selfish pride and self-righteousness. Help us to speak kindly and positively to, to one another in light of your truth. Help us to be singers and those who bring adulation and praise and good things to say to you in a heart of sincere worship. Help us to be thankful, Lord. Oh, how, how, how gratitude and bitterness can, cannot coexist. Help us to replace one with the other. Help us to be a thankful people. Help us to remember all the, all the goodness and all the, all the grace, all the mercy, all the kindness you've shown to us. Help us to remember the preciousness of the promises you've given us in Christ Jesus and help us to be thankful. Drive away a, a spirit of bitterness. Drive away that spirit of contention. Help us to be a thankful people and help us to submit to one another in humility. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being our supreme example. Help us to walk like you. Amen.